Welcome to episode 302 of Charlotte Reader's Podcast, releasing on July 12, 2022. Literary podcast in four acts, where books and writing topics are center stage. In act one, we check in with the host, we talk about what we're reading, we want to read, we hear from Mark West, Story Charlotte blog, on his story recommendations. And we have a two-minute tip from Charlotte Litt. And we feature author Rick Blayweiss in his book, Pignon Scorpion and the Barbershop Detectives, a mystery novel. In Act 2, we address this writing question. How hard is it to turn a novel into a screenplay and other screenwriting tips? And we feature author Scott Gates in his book, Gone the Redeemer, an adventure novel. In Act 3, we address this book marketing question. What's a bookstagram tour, and why should authors consider it? We feature author Johnny Bernhardt in her thriller, Hannah and Ariella, set on the Texas border. In Act 4, we uh, wrap up with our takeaways and we share what's coming uh, in the next episode. Hey, we want to thank you for listening. We really appreciate your time. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. Hey, listeners, that was our, uh, that was our co-host, uh, Sarah Archer, telling you how to engage with us. Uh, so welcome to this podcast, uh, episode 302, the second uh, of the Beyond 300 series. And uh, Hannah and Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to you, Landis. Yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Appreciate that. Yeah. yeah glad, glad to be here. We are experimenting today with the uh, new Rody uh, podcast uh, mixer too. Uh, and we're just kind of, we're going to have some fun today uh, with this thing. And uh, just to give you an example, you know, how much fun we're going to have if I can figure out uh, how to do this. Uh, well, I haven't figured out how to do it yet. But somewhere on here, there are some uh, friends of ours. There you go. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm hoping they don't do that anytime soon life. right now. In yeah. real life, yeah. They're okay. passed out, so that's always a good sign. <laughs> yeah, mine is too. <laughs> well, we'll try to get them on an upcoming episode, maybe talk a little book marketing, you know, with them. And see yeah, if I think they're experts, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They've got great ideas. All right, yeah. so what's up, hosts? Uh, what's up, uh, Hannah? Um Getting bigger and better every day. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. I would say that's true. That's probably my biggest thing right now. <laughs> it's just getting bigger and better. <laughs> I don't know about better, but <laughs> I am getting bigger. Yeah. We have a baby shower coming up at the end of the month, actually. So that'll be kind of um, cool. I think I mentioned last episode, but we we're expecting our first daughter in um, September. So kind of just that's all starting to set in, I think, and trying to get my head on straight. I think my brain's a little loose sometimes right now so you're probably in that mode of sort of trying to wrap things up right yeah just trying to make sure everything's kind of good to go for the time we'll be out and um i feel like i'm working really far ahead right now so i'm working on a lot of spring projects which is kind of nice and exciting and makes me feel a little bit less hot and humid right now also so that's (laughs) that is good but but yeah just kind of getting ready for this insane life change in a lot of different ways i think is my (laughs) 
thing right now. Good, good. And what's up with you, Sarah? Um, nothing quite that exciting, but I've been busy yeah. too, just working on writing. Um, I've got a script that I'm working on right now at the studio, so I've been under a, a deadline for rewrites. Um, so that's a fun project, <laughs> testing my abilities, but in a good way. Yeah, what we're going those... to talk about that right before the... Yeah, project. yeah, we'll yeah. get into all the screenwriting. I was about to go ahead and ask secrets. you questions, but I'm like, <laughs> I guess I'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, on Hannah, hold on. I'm like ready, I'm too eager. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get into screenwriting, we are. Uh, yeah, and so uh, for me, uh, in book tour continues. I'm at a retirement community tonight, another retirement community, to talk about the, the uh, indie retirement mystery, uh, Deadly Decorations, and I was interviewed last week uh, by D.G. Martin on the uh, WCHL, the Hill Station in Chapel Hill. That's going to come out, uh, I think, uh, next week sometime. We'll put that a link somewhere about mm -hmm. that. It was really cool to do that with him because my grandfather was the uh, sports information director at Chapel Hill in the late 40s, the 50s, and early 60s. And so, uh, and I think that uh, station was formed sometime in the 50s. Uh, so that's going on. And then the other thing to report is uh, – I am now on Instagram individually as Landis Wrights, and I, I blame <laughs> Hannah for this. Uh, <laughs> I know, I ask like every day. <laughs> have you done like, it have you, have, you done your, have you done your personal Instagram like, page? No. Like, not, not yet, Hannah, not yet. But, you know, I found that it's uh, kind of fun to post things that don't necessarily, uh, you know, they're, they're not always episodic kind of stuff we've been doing on Charlotte's podcast Instagram, which we'll still do, and we'll, Invite, but uh, you know, I'm posting a few pictures here and there. So, hey, go to Instagram, follow me. Um, right now, I'm just getting a bunch of people that that uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is, just the bots or something. But you get you get all these people that want to follow you. That you the bots. <laughs> they got two posts, and uh, both of them are them wearing a bathing suit or something, you know. And they're trying to get you <laughs> this ridiculous. Like, <laughs> and uh, anyway, it is I summer. Kind of, follows. Please, please follow me, uh, and we'll engage and share some things there. So yeah, so that's uh, what's up in the host department. We're going to talk now about the books that we're reading. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we got a lot to to do. But before we do that, we've got um, something I think will actually feed in well to this conversation because uh, we're, we're we've got several collaborations we're doing uh, here with the uh, Beyond Three Hundred, and it's. Uh, it's fun to do that. And this collaboration with the Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, which uh, you know, Sarah and I are members of and Hannah knows all about, and they're here in Charlotte and do great work. So um, as we get into the uh, reading section here, uh, we got this uh, tip from uh, Charlotte Litt, uh, and here you go. Hi, I'm Kathy Collins, co-founder and creative director of Charlotte Litt with a two-minute writing tip. Stephen King, in his craft memoir on writing, says this, if you want to be a writer, you must do two things above all others, read a lot and write a lot. There's no way around these two things that I'm aware of, no shortcut. King claims to be a slow reader. Even so, he gets through 70 or 80 books a year. He also claims that he reads purely because he loves stories, but admits there is always a learning process going on underneath. I'm a slow reader too and don't nearly get to 70 books a year. But I do rely on reading, not only for the learning it provides, but because it prompts my own writing. I mean this literally. I don't think I ever begin writing without first reading my way into it. But also mean this in a deeper, more holistic sense. For me, good writing happens through some mysterious process of cross-pollination that includes reading, 
reflecting on the natural world and my inner world through dreams mostly and imaginal leaps of fancy. But the reading comes first and from many genres, essay collections, poetry, memoir, fiction, bird guides, and even the dictionary from which some of my best ideas emerge. Charlotte Lipp's tip for the day then is to read. Read widely in the genre you're writing and widely across all forms. Ray Bradbury once said to read one short story, one essay, and one poem every night. This is pretty good advice, but whatever you choose, read, read, read. Now, here's your action step. Take out something you're currently reading and find a passage that moves you for its beauty or intensity or because it resonates with your own experience. If you're like me, you've already underlined this passage and many others with a pencil. Next, type or rewrite the passage in your journal. Afterwards, start a conversation with the passage. What about the content moves you? When have you experienced such, longed for such? Notice the writer's style, sentence structure, use or not of metaphor and symbolic language, pacing, vocabulary. What can you learn from this piece? What does it make you want to write next? Find this tip and more at charlottelit.org slash tips. All right. We thank uh, Kathy Collins, the co-founder of uh, Charlotte and the, uh, I think her title is creative director there now. So uh, thanks, uh, Kathy, for that. And uh, yeah, um, that's pretty good advice, folks, right? Yeah, I love yeah. that. Um, especially the, the action step at the end. Cause sometimes when you sit down to write, you just, you're so not inspired or you're feeling tired or whatever it is, but no matter how tired or brain dead you're feeling, you can start by finding something that you've read that inspires you and, and just copying that out and examining it. Um, so that's a great way to kind of lead into getting your own creative juices flowing. I agree with that. And I think Stephen King is a great example too, of just like a person that's just, I mean, he's so insanely talented it's it's crazy i feel like I, you can't even imagine how many stories are floating around in that guy's head but it makes sense that you would mm -hmm. read 70 books in a year <laughs> because it's like i'm sure it just like inspires all these different stories for him and it's just i mean uh such a crazy journey in his mind i would imagine <laughs> yeah I've, I've talked about this before too that i think reading is very important to uh being a writer um and it's helped me a lot because I read, I don't know, a hundred books a year for the past two or three years wow. through the podcast and yeah. more. And it, um, yeah, you learn things and it's also just, it's kind of fun. So speaking Howdy. of, words, let's talk about, uh, what we've, uh, read recently. We'll start off with Hannah. Yeah. One quick question though. How many books would you say you average per week? Just knowing that a hundred per year, what, what's that look like a week for you? Well, I don't know how many we saw in the year, 52. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I binge, like I went to the beach and read five or six books, you know, in, in a week. And then yeah. some weeks I might read just one or something. So it kind of averages out. Gosh, I need That's to step so up in year. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, I'm inspired right now. <laughs> well, you know, under an umbrella at the beach with a cooler, yeah. side, you can read a lot, you know. Yeah, you got more time. Yeah, it's a relaxing <laughs> setting for that. Yeah, exactly. right. Um, right now I'm finishing up this book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. And it's a really cool, it's kind of, um, I'm not a huge like fantasy sci-fi person sometimes, but I feel like I've been getting a little bit more into like gamer books, <laughs> like stuff with kind of like a virtual or video game like alternate reality component that's kind of what this book is like i don't know if you guys have seen mr robot um but the whole reason i you know picked this book up is because um the guy who created that show his wife reviewed this and was just like 
this is so good. It's amazing. And I'm like, okay, so this is probably going to be sort of similar to that, like futuristic kind of different tone. And it is, so it's, it's, it's kind of about these two, it's like star-crossed lovers, but in a video game like world. <laughs> so it's a little bit different. Um, I'm really enjoying it. I'm not quite finished just yet, but I, I definitely like it so far. Um, and I finished a little while ago, Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia, which I thought was really, really good. It's kind of like a, it's, I guess, classically probably defined it as horror, um, but it was also kind of like a love story, a little bit different, um, some fantastical elements to it. So that was good. Um, and this month, she actually has another book coming out that I'm excited about called The Daughter of Dr. Morale. So um, I, I feel like she's kind of been someone that I've had on my radar. Just I like her writing style. So I got some some interesting um not realistic stories going on, but <laughs> I've really been enjoying it. Yeah, that's great. And uh, just yeah. to remind the listeners, uh, we're going to put all these uh, with Sarah's help in the show notes. So uh, if you don't get all, you don't have to take notes as, you, <laughs> as you're doing this, you know, we'll have that uh, for you. So uh, Sarah, what you got reading? Um, well, I've been, I've been looking forward to tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. So I'm glad to hear your recommendation there. Yeah, it's really good. Intriguing. Um, I've been reading, um, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, which I actually started a few months ago (laughs) and I'm, I'm only maybe about 250 pages or so in it's like 11 or 1200 pages. It's a telephone book. Um, but I've been kind of chipping away at it gradually as I have time around other things. Um, it's, it's an amazing book. I mean, it's definitely a commitment to sit down and read. Um, but it's just, you know, his, his way of putting things and putting sentences together and looking at the world, I think it was just so unique and brilliant. Um, it's a book that's kind of hard to summarize because it's very sort of far ranging in the narrative, lots of storylines, lots of different characters. The person who's the closest to the main character, I guess you would say, is a student at a tennis academy. Um, and there are some passages that have really struck me that have to do with like addiction and recovery that take place in a rehab clinic. So it's it, this book is a project to read, um, but I'm enjoying it so far and I'm kind of gradually fitting it in where I have time amongst other books. And more recently, I started reading um, Honestly, We Meant Well by Grant Ginder, who I had heard of. I think his book that he's best known for is The People We Hate at the Wedding, which I haven't read yet, but I heard really great things about. And I just, um, I heard good things about his sort of style and being very witty, which always appeals to me. And this book is definitely delivering on that. I picked this up at a book swap a while ago and I'm enjoying it for sure. Um, the plot is basically about this family where the, the parents are both professors. The son is a college student and they go off on this sort of working vacation to Greece. And there's a family there who they have some kind of personal history with who they meet up with um, and just kind of their different individual personal stories that spool out. But it's a great sort of dramedy, great family story, but it has a lot of humor in it as well. And the prose is beautiful. Um, So I'm really looking forward to reading more of his work in the future too. Yeah. We're going to give our listeners uh, a lot to, to read this summer. Good, good suggestions. Uh, and, and I've had, uh, I've been busy with reading. Like the, the, the beauty of having uh, more help on the podcast is uh, more time for me to read. <laughs> <laughs> Always a positive. <laughs> so, uh, I've got uh, four books I want to mention. Uh, 20 Mile by uh, C. Matthew Smith. Uh, he and I actually appeared together at uh, Main Street Books in Davidson for an event back in the spring. Um, really like his book. He's a uh, Award-winning author, um, got a strong female protagonist. It's set in Western North Carolina. Uh, kind of tells the story of what happened to the Smoky Mountain National Park and how people kind of got their land taken away from them and then went out in, in the woods to try to, in this case, 
take it back. It's kind of a thriller, a little mystery involved. So a lot of fun because it gets into the terrain of the Western North Carolina mountains, a uh, kind of a period piece too, but a lot of suspense there. Um, and also, uh, based on Hannah's suggestion in the last episode, uh, I went and listened to the audiobook uh, Dreamtown by David Baldacci. How is it? <laughs> it, was really, it was really good. Uh, it, it's a, you know, it's a different from the kind of books he normally writes. It's a noir, and we actually had David Baldacci on the podcast before, and he talked about the first book in this series. Uh, Lucius Archer is the protagonist, and uh, uh, he's. It is just like those uh, those classic noir, you know mysteries that you read and it's this one's set in LA and Hollywood and lots of actors and actresses and there's a plot line that involves you know the cinema it, it's really kind of fun you know it's got some old language that comes in so check that out um, also um, I listened to the woman in the library uh, the audiobook Solari uh, Gentile and it uh, was really interesting in a number of respects it's a mystery a uh, woman dies uh, in a library uh, here go the title, <laughs> Woman in the Library. <laughs> but uh, four people are sitting in the reading room around a table reading when, when they hear the scream, and then they kind of meet each other, and they wouldn't have met but for that, and they all bring something else into the story. And the narrator who's telling the story um, is having someone write to her throughout the book at different points, sort of commenting on the narrative as they go as if they're critiquing the book. And it's very interesting because you learn a little bit about the critique process, but also you learn that this particular person, there's a character named after that person in the book. Uh, and you begin to wonder, there's sort of two lines going here. I don't want to give too much away, but you find out some things about this person who's critiquing the book as the story goes on that tie into the main narrative. So a lot of fun there. And then the final book is, um, you know, for anybody who is interested in you know what goes on in the minds of writers, this book is... Uh, it's, you know, copyright 2013, but it's called Why We Write, um, and it's uh, edited by Meredith Moran. It's all these authors uh, talking about why they write. And, uh, you know, speaking of David Baldacci, for example, there's a line in here in his chapter, if writing were illegal, I'd be in prison. <laughs> That's, <what he> <laughs> That's definitely said, true. <laughs> I can't not write. It's, it's a compulsion, and you see that through here. And then some of these other... Uh, writers like Sue Grafton talks about uh, how her life is informed by writing. Um, and, uh, you know, and then there's it, what I found interesting. Walter Mosley, there's a little section in here, and he talks about rejection. He's a well-known uh, mystery writer, uh, but he talks about rejection uh, is always very painful, but you learn to enjoy it. Uh, and he's got some interesting, funny stories about how he was rejected and how he uses it sort of as motivation um, so, you know, it's great. It's sort of an easy read. You can pick it up. You can read different chapters and find out, you know, what these famous writers think about writing. And the cool part is, you know, they've been rejected too. So there's always hope for them, right? <laughs> uh, it does make you feel a lot better that Walter Mosley has been there too. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, a little spot here about Libro.fm. Then we're going to come back and uh, hear Story Charlotte's uh, recommendations. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. I mean, this is great. We got all these book recommendations, and also we're going to drop in here our, our little 
a tip from Mark West. If you hadn't checked out his blog, we're going to have links to it in our show notes. It's on our website as well. Um, you can uh, find out what he's talking about in terms of Charlotte stories. And uh, he's collaborating with us to provide updates uh, in each episode uh, for uh, his recommendations. So here we go. Hello, this is Mark West with Story Charlotte, a blog that celebrates Charlotte's community of readers and writers. I'm here today to tell you about some wonderful new books by genre writers here in Charlotte. Charlotte is home to some amazing genre writers. The genres are different, but boy, the quality of the books is consistent. And so I wanna recommend three books, different genres, but they're all excellent. And they're all books that just came out uh, in, the, in the last month or so. The first one is probably the most famous in terms of the author, and that's Kathy Reich's new uh, Temperance Brennan book, called Cold, Cold Bones. For those of you who haven't read uh, the um, Temperance Brennan series books, uh, they're all about a character who is a forensic anthropologist who is called in to help solve crimes. All of her books would fall into the genre of thriller mysteries. Her books are tense, her books have always a mystery on in them, of course, but there's a edge to them as well, which uh, appeals to many readers. And so if you like, if you like uh, thriller novels, if, you, if that genre appeals to you, I highly recommend her brand new book, Cold, Cold Bones. Now, if you are really more in the mood for something like romance, well, Charlotte has a wonderful romance writer named Cheris Hodges, who has written lots of romance novels, but she has a series going now called the Richardson Sisters series. Of course, it's all about four sisters, and the sisters are all part of a, a family project of running an historic bed and breakfast in Charleston, South Carolina, although oftentimes Charlotte makes an appearance in her books. The most recent book in this series is called Can't Hide Love, and it deals with uh, Alexandria as one of the sisters. And in this uh, uh, particular volume, volume four in this series, um, this particular sister uh, ends up uh, in a situation uh, with an architect who has been hired to help uh, renovate the um, bed and breakfast that they run there in in uh, in Charleston. So if you like Charleston, if you're interested in, in books that deal with romance, um, and if you have an interest in African-American literature in general, I highly recommend Can't Hide Love. And then the last book I want to recommend is a historical fantasy uh, book called The Merlin Club by Nancy Northcott. Now, for the purposes of honesty, um, Nancy Northcott, I happen to know pretty well because she happens to be my wife. But that said, um, The Merlin Club is a great book. It's the first book in a new series. And it deals with um, uh, a group of uh, mages of wizards who live in kind of a secret society in England, in Europe. And uh, they have a group that club essentially 
where they uh, help solve problems and deal with uh, the kinds of crises that come into play. And they call that group the Merlin Club. And so this first book in the series really kicks off this whole uh, interesting uh, group of, of uh, talented and magically gifted wizards living in historic um, Britain. So if you like, if you like um, historical fantasy, well, this might be the book for you. All these books are available, and I've written about all of them on my Story Charlotte blog. So just go to Story Charlotte if you want more information. So those are my recommendations for the summer. They all, all these books would make great summer reading. And with that, I will sign off and wish you all a wonderful, happy reading summer. All right, that's great from uh, Mark West. Uh, yeah, and so we got a Charleston mention there, right? Yeah, now. I was like, I'll have to check that out for sure. <laughs> and, and romance that uh, comes down, uh, Sarah. That's you know the rom com. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I love hearing about new local authors. I mean, it just it's a testament to how great our literary community is here too. That I'm still discovering great writers that are right here. Yeah, and Nancy Northcott, I've had her on the podcast before. She's got a wide range. I mean, she does. She writes the fantasy we had her on before. Uh, it was, I think they were in outer space, and now she's got what historical <laughs> fantasies. <laughs> a lot of range there. Uh, before we wrap up this section, uh, Sarah, I believe you went and gathered uh, some of our listener feedback that uh, we have from Instagram, right? Yeah, people have been dropping in some of their book recommendations, which is awesome. Um, so Disability Friendly Charlotte um, shared with us that the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library System has a list of reading recommendations out that spotlight those with disabilities. Um, July is Disability Pride Month, so they're sharing that on their website, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes for this episode. Um, Chris Arvidson, who is a listener and also a wonderful poet, recommended um, the book The Man Who Loved Dogs. And she also recommended um, Andrew Graff's Raft of Stars. And Barbara Hazlett recommended The Match by Harlan Coben. So can't wait to check those out as well. And if you have your own recommendations, feel free to drop them in on Instagram or through our website. We're always looking for um, new books to read. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Rears podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way. And we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. So we're going to talk now uh, about a feature we're doing uh, for one of our authors today. Uh, his uh, name is Rick uh, Blayweiss. Uh, wrote a book called Pignon Scorpion and the Barbershop Detectives, which, uh, I mean, that, that title right there just attracted me. And I, I read the book and had a lot of fun with it. It's a mystery book. And Rick comes to us uh, from Ashland, Oregon. Uh, he's an author, a publishing executive, former music industry executive. Uh, he's been Grammy nominated, uh, record producer. This is his first novel, um, but he started his career as a rock performer. He's produced over 50 records as a songwriter. And this is just another way that uh, he... Uh, is uh, challenging himself uh, creatively. And it's going to be a series. Um, it's sort of uh, kind of developed. Uh, it's set kind of in an English town. We're going to talk about that in the interview, uh, more about him in our in our show notes. Uh, this book was just selected as one of Amazon editors' picks for best mystery thriller and suspense, uh, as, one, as well as one of the best uh, 
new debut mystery novels by Publishers Weekly and the Buzz Book of the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association. And uh, if you like uh, Hercule Perot and uh, Sherlock Holmes and you know all that kind of thing, this is kind of a quirky police chief inspector who has some unlikely helpers that uh, work in the barbershop. So a lot of fun, and we're gonna we're gonna play that uh, uh, recording uh, now. I, the interview that I did uh, with Rick, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. Hey, Rick, welcome to Charlotte Reese Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you. I'm enjoying what's happening with it almost as much as I enjoyed writing it. Well, that's good. We're going to talk about that, but I want to make sure I'm pronouncing. Uh, I, I looked in the book. It's Pinyon Scorpion. Did I get that right? Yep. Pinyon Scorpion. Yep. yep. All right. Exactly. And the, bar, and the barbershop detectives, right? That is correct. <laughs> well, I really I really enjoyed reading this book. I took it to the beach with me and read it on the beach. And uh, it, it's it, it's... You used a line, and this kind of gets into my first line of discussions here. 1910 Downton Abbey era town in England is kind of the set. Talk about the setting for this book, Rick. Well, it, it, it absolutely is. It's a fictitious town called Hexford, and it's somewhere in England, and it is a, a countryside hamlet village in the 1910. And uh, it's uh, after a lot of research I did, it's just a kind of typical smaller English town. Yeah. Now, have you been to any of those kind of towns uh, in your life? Yeah, I have. I've been to England uh, quite a few times. Uh, in fact, I once uh, went to a castle, an old castle in the uh, suburbs of London, but the far suburbs, not not close in. And I even won a crossbow contest at the, uh, at the castle. <laughs> Well, you you can't help but stumble across a castle somewhere along the way in England or Scotland. You know, it's like uh, seen one, seen them all at some point, you know, when you're exactly. on your tour. Uh, but, but let's do this. Let's talk about this little town because uh, before we talk about the character itself, because the, the town is kind of a character itself as well, right? Yeah, it, it is. And as the um, as the second book unfurls, because I, I've just finished with the developmental, developmental editing on the second book, the town is even described fuller. So it really opens sort of like unpeeling an onion, if you will. But uh, yeah, the, the town is a character itself because of uh, the places, the shops, and the people from the town that are all part of it. Yeah, it, it was really a, a nice little setting for the kind of mystery that you wrote. It's one of those old-style uh, English mysteries, but it's it's a character, and we, we need to talk about Pinyon Scorpion, um, and, and and you're going to have a little reading a little bit later that talks about when he gets to the barbershop for the first time and meets some of his uh, barbershop detectives. But uh, to talk about this man, because, you know, when I was thinking about him, and, and you have some of this in your plug material too, I was thinking about Hercule Perot, um, kind of a dashing figure with some idiosyncrasies. This character has He's a bit dashing as well, and he has his own idiosyncrasies, right? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I put together, I haven't published it yet, but I put together a whole paper comparing uh, Scorpion to uh, Poirot and Sherlock Holmes, because they all share a lot of traits in common. But, um, you know, when you said that uh, Poirot was kind of a dashing figure, you know, if, if you read... Uh, the actual books, as opposed to watch the movies. Um, mm. In the books, he is actually not very attractive. He's got an oh. egg-shaped head. 
He has virtually no romantic interludes with anyone. Uh, he's a natty dresser. There's no question of that. But that's almost physically where the similarities end because um, Scorpion is fit. He's athletic. He's a former rugby player. Um, he's a good-looking man. He's interested in women having been uh, previously married. Um, you know, he's, he's a different figure. He and Poirot share in common deductive and observational abilities. But after that, other than being natty dressers and not of the same style either, uh, they kind of diverge. Uh, Scorpion's also collaborative and collegial, and Poirot was kind of a loner in solving things. So, they're, they're, you know, he's his own man. Mm, that's interesting. And he came to this little town because I think he wasn't getting enough uh, brain stimulation in the town he was in. Uh, the crimes weren't uh, difficult to solve. They didn't come along fast enough. So he comes to this little town, and all of a sudden he's got three murders to deal with, right? Exactly. Yep. <laughs> it's like real life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, um, you know, a little bit more about him and his personality, uh, because not many detectives uh, set up shop you know, in the barbershop to help, you know, solve the mystery. But I like the technique because um, it gave you an opportunity, I think, to use dialogue quite a bit in the solving of the mysteries. I mean, it's like, it's almost like uh, an Agatha Christie where everyone's in the house and they're going over the evidence and they're taking it, you know, one person at a time. You did it, but you did it with the, talk about that, you know, that setup and what you were thinking with that. You know, it, it's funny because the way I write, and this this will answer the question, uh, is I don't plot anything out in front. I don't bullet point anything. I just sort of see a story unfold in my mind, and it's kind of my job to sit at the computer and type out what I'm seeing play as a movie. And I just saw the barbershop. It was there in my brain. And I went, wow, I don't remember. There are, I remember some mysteries set in hair salons, mostly women's cozies, but I don't remember very many, if any, in a barbershop. Not that there aren't, but I just couldn't remember them. So when it came to me, I just went, wow, this is a cool environment. I can involve other characters. And it just kept playing out. Yeah. And and you have these other characters. They're, they're sort of working class. Uh, one's the barber himself. Somebody else, you know, is just there all the time helping out as another barber. And then you've got the, the fellow who's trying to work his way up from the printing press to writing a few articles. I think his name is Billy, and he's going to record the adventures almost like Watson the Sherlock, right? right I mean, he's, exactly. he's going he's gonna to put this down on paper somewhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I actually, um, Billy showed up because um, I, I wanted, even though I know people know that it's fiction, and, and this didn't happen, I still wanted to make it believable. Almost, you know, like, all right, let's suspend belief here for a second. And, and I tried to pepper it with enough details and accuracy that it, it might seem real, you know, that somebody could buy into it. And Billy, being the chronicler, to me, added to that. Well, I found it interesting because it's almost like you're solving 
crimes at the same pace they do it on television, right? You just bring all the people in, you put them in the barbershop chair, you interview the, all the suspects, and you know by the end of the afternoon, he's, he's got a mystery solved, right? Yeah, well, I must admit that uh, uh, Murder in Paradise is one of my very favorite shows, and that they do it similarly, but a little differently. And I can't say that that didn't uh, impact or affect me to some degree. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm amazed as a former trial lawyer, I'm watching a show on Netflix called Making of a Murder, and it seems like you know, they do a full-blown trial in every episode as if there's nothing to it, right? You know, no, 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 no prep, we're going to put somebody on trial for murder, and we're just going to get it done while there's another plot thing running along beside it. Well, um, yeah, it's really fun. So, so um, you also put a strong female bookstore owner character in the book, which I found very interesting. Assuming she's going to come back in book two and have a part as well. Oh, big time! Yeah, yeah, yeah. M- much even a much bigger part even. I, uh, you know, m- most of the uh, the women that are portrayed from that era, and if you look at Downton Abbey, it's kind of an example of it. Most of the women, not all, but most, uh, were were involved with charity work. You know that um, the, the women who had the money and the time to do that kind of a thing, and I. I just saw Thelma as not that, but as a woman who was ahead of her time and who was a a working woman. She happened to be a shop owner, not just a worker. But yeah, I I, I saw her as the antithesis of his wife, who was kind of clinging and needy, but bright. And I saw uh, her, Thelma, as just unconventional and assertive and ahead of her time. Yeah, she was a good match uh, uh, for for Pinyon, and I think he liked that. I think yeah. that's uh, that came clear uh, in the novel. Well, I'm gonna have some more questions, but let's do this. This is a Charlotte's podcast where authors give voice to the written words. You got a little scene here that you're gonna read uh, for our listeners. Um, anything you want to say about it before you read it, or it's pretty early in the book, right? Yeah, it's very very early in the book, and it's uh, Scorpion shows up at the barber shop, meets Calvin Brown, who owns it, who he used to be friends with. Calvin introduces him to the barbers and the shoeshine man. And there's another person in the barber shop sitting in the barber, one of the barber chairs. And so Scorpion, this is where Scorpion addresses him, this unknown young man. All right. So anytime you're ready. Scorpion addressed the younger man sitting in the barber chair. And you, my good fellow, who appears to be part of the clientele of this establishment, you who have not been identified yet, what is your name? I'm Billy, sir. Billy Arthurson. And what do you do, Billy Arthurson? No, wait, let me tell you. Swivel in that chair to face me fully. Billy did as he was asked. From the grease on both your trouser cuffs, I would say you work with machinery. But your shoes have none of that substance anywhere on them. They're clean and somewhat polished so you do not work on those motorized carriages that have begun to invade our streets, or in some position with the railway. If you did, those shoes would be scraped and dirty and scuffed by cobblestones. If you would indulge me, lift up and rotate your hands for a moment. Billy did, as Scorpion instructed, turning them front and back. I see that you've tried to clean them, but some of the ink is still under your fingernails, and on your right sleeve cuff as well. Billy bent his arm to see his cuff. Nice to meet you, Billy, the printing press mechanic for, ah, yes, for the Hexford Morning News. If you worked for that ghastly rag that passes for an evening gazette, 
you would not be in here at the shop at this time of the day, would you? That's great. Thank you for that. Uh, so, so talk a little bit about the inspiration uh, for this, Rick, because this is uh, you, you've done a lot of different things in your life and your career. You've been in music, you were uh, in, in the book business, uh, may still be, but uh, now you're writing your you got this first novel, it's getting good reviews. How did what inspired you to write this particular story? I had written nonfiction most of my life. Um, I've written newspaper columns and magazine articles and things like that. Not not. Uh, that was not really my vocation. Like you said, I was in the music industry, but I always liked writing. I always had a penchant for it. And when I moved from New York City to Ashland in 2003, Ashland, Oregon, where I live now, in the middle of nowhere, um, my next door neighbor was a poet. And we got to be friends. And she said, I am in a writing group. And I think they'd like you. I think you'd like them. And maybe it will inspire you to write some more. So I joined the writing group and I started writing short stories, short fiction. I really had never written much fiction in my life, but I just tried my hand at it. And the first couple of stories were mediocre at best. And then this story came to me. It started as a short story and I read it, what I had of it to the group. And they just went, you got to do this. this you got to develop this into a novel. This is too good. And that's how it started. That's great. And uh, was there something about what you liked to read growing up or what you liked to watch on TV or that, that led you into this particular kind of story? I, I think the answer is definitely a major yes. Uh, I mean, I, I, I started as a child reading every Hardy Boys book. I mean, I realized that wasn't in a small town in England, but it was, you know, the genre, if you will. And then I read every Miss Marple, every Hercule Poirot, every Sherlock Holmes. I read Father Brown. I, I read, you know, you name it, Chester Himes, Rex Stout. Now, some of them were not, and many others, and, and some of them were not situated in small towns in England. Some were. I watch a lot of Brit box mysteries uh, that I really like, and a lot of them are set in small English towns. As I said earlier, having been to England, I had some familiarity, and it just came to me and felt natural. And so I said, "Let's go with it." <laughs> yeah, and there's, there, you know, there's a, there's a murder scene at the fair, and there's a guy on big stilts and everything. Uh, how did that idea pop into your head? The this the uh, the circus uh, scene that you're mm -hmm. talking about with the stilts, it, it just it was there. It it came yeah. it, it just came into my head, and I it it actually came into my head, not as a part of this book, but as a separate entity. And I thought to myself, well, that would make a cool mystery if I added mystery to this human interest circus behind the scenes. And so I, I incorporated it into uh, into the book. And actually, now it's one of my favorite scenes in the book. <laughs> yeah. And you just described the secret of writing. It's magic, right? <laughs> you, you know, I, I was listening, watching a concert that Carol King and, and James Taylor did, and uh, Carol King was sitting at the piano, and he asked her how she wrote "You've Got a Friend," which was one of her biggest hits. And she said, "I can't tell you how I wrote it. I was just sitting at this piano or a piano, and it came to me, and I started singing it and playing it word for word, note for note, exactly as the song is, and." It is. It's magic. It's inspiration. It's I don't know what it is, 
but it it's it, for many creative people it's just there and you you capture it all right one last question here on your writing life side of things uh you talked about joining this critique group and learning from others and writing getting critiques and feedback and all this kind of thing so you know looking back on this you're already in your second book uh uh you've you've really written a lot now because you got this full-length novel you've got another novel what have you learned, Rick, that uh, you wish you had known when you first started this thing called writing a novel that had you known it, it might have made it a little bit easier to get started? I did not know how much research would go into doing a historical fiction novel. And it was staggering. But I knew in order to make it feel right, it had to be right. And I think the difference is I would have started the research earlier in the project, whereas I wrote the first uh, draft, if you will, and then I went back and did a ton. And I did research along the way. I researched Pion Scorpion's name. I didn't just come up with it out of nowhere. It actually was basis of research I did. But I think I maybe I wouldn't have tackled historical fiction if I knew how much research there was. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, look, I really, I really enjoyed the book, uh, Rick. We're out of time, but t- tell folks it'll be in our show notes. But tell folks uh, where they can go to find your book. You've got a website, I'm sure. My website is rickblyweiss.com, uh, my yeah. name, and uh, they the book can be basically anywhere online, uh, independent right. bookstores, book chains. It, it's basically available everywhere and if it's not in your local bookstore ask them for it <laughs> exactly exactly so and you're having fun doing it right a ton of fun oh uh, yeah one of the most creating is one of the most fun things i do have done in my entire life that's good well, rick thank you for uh coming on charlotte's podcast to talk about pinion scorpion and the barbershop detectives my pleasure thank you for having me i don't know about y'all but uh but uh it sounded like he was having a lot of fun yeah, I love the title of that book. It's like rolls right off the tongue, you know, like Pinyon Scorpion. You know, I thought <laughs> like sure. you were going to say it, it sounds like Roll Doll. Um, and that's what I was almost thinking. Yeah, like, that I kind can... of quirky British feel to it. I love it. Yes. Well, he like won, what was it? A, some sort of oh, a crossbow um, <laughs> contest at a castle. That's pretty, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely a bucket list type of activity. Yeah, I did like the the way that he set it up so that, you know, as I was reading the book, you know, that he solves these mysteries by sort of cross-examining people in the barbershop. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of get a feel for, yeah. it's one of the, you get all these Perry Mason moments where people confess on the, st- <laughs> on the stand yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> so, it's kind of like, Very like, cool. like I said, how you solve those things in, uh, in, in one minute. Well, we're going to do uh, just a quick message and then we're going to come back with, uh, you know, our act two, and we've got a writing talk uh, that we're going to do on uh, screenwriting and got another author feature uh, with Scott Gates. So uh, hang with us. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemearspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits. But with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play or participate in an author or marketing talk or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. 
All right, we're in Act Two now, and I suppose I should say um, uh, to you, the listener, thank you for still being with us. And you know what we're trying to do here um, is provide more content in each episode, but only twice a month, so that uh, you know if you don't have time to, to consume all this at one time, obviously um, don't. Right? Is that good to say that? You have permission. Yeah, yeah. Or, or come back, you know, and uh, you know it'll pick up right where it left off. <laughs> or if you're traveling, you know, if you're you, whatever you like to listen as you walk, uh, maybe you get more of it in. Or maybe you know the show notes that uh, Sarah's creating. We're going to have timestamps there, and also in the newsletter that Hannah's taking lead on, we'll have timestamps there, so you can see kind of where you want to go. If you want to go right to the writing discussion or right to the marketing discussion or right to a particular author and listen, of course, we'd love you to listen to the whole episode and give us feedback on the whole thing, but maybe you'll just give us feedback on some pieces of it. But uh, yes, yeah, so we're going to do that. And uh, that was real dog barking, wasn't it? Uh, you know, I was looking at them out of the side of my, I'm like, they're playing now. So they're, they're probably going to insert themselves in this okay. right, <laughs> conversation. I don't, I don't even need to go to my mixer now. We're good, man. Right. So uh, yeah, you're, no need for that with these two. Right. Well, now we're gonna, we're gonna, <laughs> I think they heard us. Um, so we're going to be doing this thing now uh, in the writing question. Um, the writing question is how hard is it to turn a novel into a screenplay and other screenplay writing tips. And uh, Sarah is uh, fresh off of uh, having sold her first major screenplay, right, Sarah? So uh, first, before we get into the you know technical part of this, um, I've got some, I'm curious about this, I know Hannah is too, but uh, talk a little bit about whatever you can tell us, you know, about what you're working on and what was accepted and that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. So it's a romantic comedy. Um, it's kind of an ensemble story like Love Actually, where there's multiple storylines, but they all sort of intersect and the characters exist in the same universe. Um, and I've always just loved that sort of structure. I think there's a lot of storytelling potential there. Um, so this is something that I wrote initially a couple of years ago, just on my own, just as a spec script, because um, it was just an idea that I had that I, I kind of latched on to. And um, I used to work in LA. I, I was an assistant at different production and management companies. So I reached out to a producer who I knew there um, and sent her and her company the script and they were interested in it. And we did a round of revisions together and then they sent it off to a studio and the studio wanted to buy it. So now I'm into the process of doing revisions with um, the studio as well. So... <laughs> <laughs> that is all us. <laughs> we got people in the background. They're just that's awesome. <laughs> that is so cool, Sarah. That's really, really cool. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and the dogs are happy too. So. I know they're they're cheering right now. That's what they're doing. Our two so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You've got some fans over here in Charleston. <laughs> that's so cool, though. How long was that process for you? On this particular one, I, I initially wrote, I think, the first draft probably about a year and a half or two years ago. Obviously, I've been working on other projects in between then. Um, I tend to, I like to kind of take a while to work on things because I'll write a draft or something and then I send it off to people and ask for notes and I work on other stuff while I'm waiting for their notes. And then I come back to it. And so I have like a fresher perspective when I have some time away. Um, so I was kind of working on it off and on for a year or two. And then I sent it to these producers, I think like in January, earlier this year. 
and we were kind of we did like our round of revisions on it and then once the studio got involved things kind of pick up the pace because they have obviously a schedule they're working on where it's like well if you want to shoot this we're going to do it in this month and so we have to kind of adhere to that timeline um so it's it's definitely something where it's like you go at your own pace and then all of a sudden everything happens at once <laughs> so how did that feel sarah i know you, you've been a published novelist uh traditionally published uh, you you do a lot of other writing too but to have your first screenplay how'd that feel it's awesome i mean i'm sure that you can relate to this as a writer but writing is just so subjective that there's no you never know if anything you're doing is good quote unquote or if you're doing anything right um and you can write something and maybe you love it but you know there's never there's always going to be other people who don't like it um so to have a company actually like put their money behind it is probably the closest thing you'll get to an actual like real stamp of approval on a project and not that you should you know as a writer I think you should try to seek a lot of your your value and your motivation inward in terms of finding joy in the craft itself and writing something that you enjoy but it is nice to have that sort of external validation honestly <laughs> um, and proof that you're doing something that somebody actually thinks is is worthwhile. Yeah that's great well keep us updated on that and uh when it comes out, we'll have a watch party or something. You know? Yeah, that'll be awesome. <laughs> and, and now that we've established uh, your credentials uh, here, let's let's jump into the topic. Uh, I mean, the question begs a you know quick answer. How hard is it to turn a novel into a screenplay? Uh, seven out of ten hard. <laughs> um, I mean, I would say it's harder to write a novel, I think, than to write a screenplay. It, it takes more work. Um, with screenwriting, there are more sort of restrictions you have to pay attention to and some different kind of things you have to take into consideration that you don't necessarily have to consider when you're writing fiction. Um, but writing a novel, you know, you're, you're the only game in town in a way. Like the author is pretty much the only person responsible for creating this piece, even though there might be editors involved along the way and stuff like that. But with a screenplay, it's like there might be multiple writers who write the script and then the script itself is just a blueprint. So there's going to be probably hundreds of other people involved in the project from start to finish to actually get a movie or a TV show made. So you're doing less of the process. So like, for instance, in a book where, you know, if you want your readers to know um, what a character is wearing, you have to describe that. But in a screenplay, you're only going to describe what someone's wearing is um, if it's essential to the story in some way. Otherwise, like there's costume designers, and then that's their their role in that their department and so you kind of leave that up to them to do their job so you do less of the work um so if for instance you've already written a novel and now you're trying to adapt it into a screenplay a lot of what you're doing is going to be kind of stripping down and taking things out and figuring out what doesn't belong in there um which can still be challenging you know that still takes a lot of work especially if it's something that you've written and it's close to you and you feel like all of it is important so you have to kind of figure out what doesn't belong um but I would say writing a screenplay is very much about the story and the structure. So if you can kind of find the spine of your story and what really what really matters in terms of what moves the action forward, um, that's a great place to start. And then you can sort of strip out everything else from there. So, is it, you know, obviously in a novel, you've got a lot of things. You've got what you just described as what maybe what people are wearing, but you've got the surroundings and the settings. You've got some character development. You've got some backstory. Am I correct that I heard somewhere that for like a screenplay, you know, it's pretty much only about a hundred pages and those hundred pages are like double spaced and you're not really mm -hmm. getting into a whole lot of, I mean, it's, it's really dialogue, right? For the most part. Exactly. What you're 
Yeah, yeah, so the general rule of thumb is that in a script, a page of a script is equivalent to about a minute on screen. So it used to be that scripts for a movie would be probably about 120 pages, but movies have actually gotten shorter. So now there's there's more and more pressure to keep things shorter, closer to like 90 to 100 pages for a feature script. Obviously for TV, it's going to be a different length depending on how long the episode is. Um, and then there's a lot more white space on the page than there would be in a novel or a memoir or something like that. So there's a lot less, but that also means that every single word counts and you have to pack a real punch with every line. So anytime that I write a screenplay, I'm, I'm going through and I'm making a lot of cuts and trying to get it as short as possible because every page really matters. Um, but yeah, it's just the action lines or description lines and then the dialogue and the action description is really just the nuts and bolts of what needs to be there. You're not getting any sort of extra description or, um, you know, you don't get to use like the lovely prose that you might use in writing a novel. It's, it's much more sort of efficient and just to the point, get the information across. When you're like writing, so when you were writing your book, did you already kind of envision it being a movie or a show? Like, do you kind of do mm-hmm. that as you're writing or is it something that kind of comes after? Um, I think for me, I, I tend to, since I do write both fiction and screenwriting, I like to sort of go where the story leads me. Like if it's a story that I think would work yeah. well as a novel, I'll think of it that way. If it's a story that I think would work better as either like a feature or a TV show, I'll, I'll think of it that way. Um, when I wrote my first novel, The Plus One, um, I had never written a novel before. I'd only done screenwriting. So initially I did think of it as a screenplay and I think it, it could potentially work in that form but I also saw potential for it as a novel and I was at a place in my life where I finally had like time to try writing a novel and I wanted to to try that creative challenge so I did it that way um, but it's also since been optioned for actually television as opposed to a movie um, oh, and that awesome. was interesting to me because I think obviously there's there's a big creative change there you know when you're going from like a close-ended story like a book or a movie to something that would become a series but I think that would be really exciting to kind of open it up and change the characters around and see how it would become more of like a continuous story. A lot more room, too, for growth, yeah, I guess. I think, exactly. like, with TV and movies, too, I'm a huge, like, I love TV <laughs> so much. Like, I don't know. I think the reason I like it so much, though, is because you can build the relationship with the characters mm-hmm. a little bit better. It's like, because you have more time and space to do that. Um, that's really interesting. And so were you, did you study screenwriting in school or you've just, you've been doing that first then before you dove into writing novels? Yeah. I, so when I was in college, um, I studied, my major was English and then I did two different minors. One was in creative writing, but that was focused more on poetry, which has definitely been a huge boon for my career. (laughs) A lot of money in the poetry (laughs) world. Um, And then my other minor was screenwriting. So I did get to study screenwriting in school. It's a good mix. Um, Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're very different, but I I love both of those. Um, And so I, I feel like I learned some good kind of like basics of the craft of screenwriting in school, but it's definitely something where to learn the industry, you kind of have to be in it and be immersed in it and like hear how people develop things and what studios and producers and all that are looking for. So I went out to LA after school and was, um, was working in that industry and reading scripts all the time and that sort of thing. And it's just like we were talking about with the, the writing tip from yeah. lit, like if you want to write books, you should be reading books. If you want to write screenplays, you should be watching film and TV and reading screenplays. So I'm curious um, about some of the tips that you have for people that are thinking about, you know, taking this on. Say you're you know, a short story writer. Say you're, you've written a novel, but you want to try to tackle this thing, you know, called uh, screenwriting. Um, 
where do you start and what are some of your thoughts on some of the basic things you need to think about? Well, I would say like, say you have a novel that you've written and you're trying to decide if you think it would be good for a, you know, a movie or a TV show. Um, look at the story because like I said, it is a very kind of story driven medium. Um, and there are things that might work as a novel that can be a little bit like looser structurally and more focused on maybe the prose or kind of the, the voice and the perspective of the main character, but that doesn't always translate as well on screen. So um, I would think about like, does your story have a really clear storyline with like a clear inciting incident and a climax and all that sort of thing? Also, like how sort of internal versus external in it, you know, is it is it like is it a story that's more about kind of the thoughts of the characters or is there more external conflict? Um, the more external it is, the easier it's going to be to kind of show visually as opposed to writing it in prose. Um, and I would also think about kind of the marketplace, you know, like what are you seeing that's being released as films and TV shows right now? Do you think that your story is one that might have an audience? Because it takes a lot more financial investment to make a movie or a TV show than to publish a book. So I think there is more room in publishing to publish stories that might hit like a very small niche audience because it, it requires less sort of, you know, output to make a book. Um, whereas with a, a movie or a TV show, there's a big financial risk behind it. Um, so it has to be something that's going to hit a kind of wider audience as well. Some of what you talk about there is just sort of inherent in, in any story or novel that is you need to have an exciting incident, you need to have a good storyline, you need to have characters that are interesting and mm-hmm. internal and external conflict. But I see the point about the external conflict because that's what's going to visually you know, show up on the screen. I know nothing, uh, Sarah, about the process of having someone consider uh, a screenplay. I know a lot about the world of, you know, submitting mm-hmm. novels to publishers and that kind of thing. How does it work in the screenwriting world? Well, it's, you know, they say that it's all about who you know, and that's really true. <laughs> um, it is a very kind of insular, incestuous kind of industry, you could say. Um, and so it's something where it's honestly, it is very hard to break in from outside. Even if you're working in the industry, it's really hard to sell a script. Um, but especially if you're coming in from outside, it is difficult to sort of break through those walls. So if you have any connections, use them. <laughs> that's going to be your your best source of trying to get your script to people who can actually do something with it. Um, there are also contests you can enter for screenwriters. Um, there are a lot of them out there. So just do your kind of due diligence and research because they're all going to be happy to take your money for your, uh, submission fee. And some of them are kind of more legitimate than others. Um, but like blue cat is a good one. The final draft contest, um, the launch pad contest, the nickel, like you can, you can find some of the big ones online and those are potential ways to actually get your script to, you know, legitimate people and companies. Um, you can cold query agents and managers the same way that you would with a book, but it's more difficult. Um, I think people in the book world are much more receptive to that, whereas most agents in film and TV are probably not going to look at unsolicited queries. Some managers will, some managers won't. So again, just kind of do your research, but that's a potential way in. I, I will just say, though, like on a, a good note, um, if you already have a novel that you've written, that's a great step forward because people love IP in Hollywood. They love having something that's based on something else. So if you can say like, this is based on a novel that was published, that's going to give you a big leg up as opposed to just a script that you wrote. Even if it's, you wrote the novel and you also wrote the script and it's the same idea. They like the fact that there's already a novel out there. Now you're a traditionally published author with your first rom-com. 
do they also own the script rights for things like this? Or can you turn that yourself into a, a screenplay? Is that, uh, how does that work exactly? Yeah. So um, with my first novel, the plus one, the rights, I don't think the publisher actually owned the, the film rights. Um, there's a, a TV, a production company that optioned it for television. So they currently have the rights. And then, you know, if the option expires, the rights go back, I think to me, and then another company could potentially option it as well in the future. Um, so, so they didn't own that. Now every deal is different, so I'm not mm-hmm. sure exactly, you know, different publishers might do it differently, but in my case, I was able to option it out to a company. Any thoughts on writing your plus one into a screenplay? Um, it's something I've thought about. Um, I think I would have to be kind of in the right creative space for it. Like I tend to, when I write a project, I'm, I'm in it when I'm working on it. And then once I'm done with it, I'm done with it. <laughs> I have other ideas that I want to like move on and write. So I think I would need to, to feel inspired enough by it to want to go back into that world. Um, but I do think like with the idea of doing it for television, that was, that did kind of pique my interest because that's a way to totally revamp it and kind of reimagine the characters as opposed to as a film, it, it might be a more sort of straightforward adaptation. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I might at some point like try writing a pilot version of it. So Hannah, we may be hanging out with somebody really famous here. When, you know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> get on TV and she's going to get in the movie. I'll lay out my I'll... red carpet here in the office. Yeah. <laughs> we need to put more of the applause coming up. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I assume in that world, just like in the publishing world, there's rejection along the way and you just have mm. to stick with it, right? Oh yeah, for sure. It's, I think all writers face that, right? I think that's pretty universal. <laughs> I think yeah. that's a sign to know that you've kind of like made it where you need to be if you've gotten like, yeah, or at least you're X trying. Number. Like, you yeah, know, if you're putting stuff out there, you're probably gonna get rejected sometimes, but it's better than not trying. Yeah. I feel like all the best writers are always saying that too. They're like, Oh, I was rejected like <laughs> 1 million and one times yeah. when yeah. first started doing this. So. <laughs> So, uh, Sarah, any parting thoughts on uh, screenwriting before we get to our next piece here? If you're interested, try it. I mean, I, I always am an advocate of if you do one type of writing, like stretch your muscles and try another kind. So um, it's always worth dabbling and picking up some new skills. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswave.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. Okay, we're now in uh, scene two of uh, Act Two, and uh, we got an author feature here. And Hannah, I believe you got this feature, so take it away. Yeah, so I was super excited to learn about this writer, um, Scott Gates, and the book that he's going to be talking about a little bit today is Gone the Redeemer, um, which is in the adventure genre. And so Scott grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, and he's kind of, you know, worked as a writer, editor, all that good stuff in Colorado, Virginia, and North Carolina. Um, Some of my favorite states, actually, and my dogs agree. (laughs) They're like, we love North Carolina. Um, his first novel, Hard Road South, was a finalist in the debut author category of the Feathered Quill Book Awards. 
Um, and his short fiction has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize. And so, yeah, like I said, this book, um, Gone the Redeemer, is his second novel, and it came out last month in June, um, published by Blue Ink Press. Um, Scott and his brothers share their kind of Southern culture perspectives on a website called the Inc- or Incidentalist.com, which I had a chance to take a look at, and it's pretty good. It's, it's funny. Um, they talk about lots of good stuff like bourbon and barbecue, two of my husband's favorite things, so shout out to him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's kind of a, a neat uh, blog where you can kind of get a good insight on all things Southern culture and fiction and stuff like that. Um, he currently lives in Raleigh, North Carolina with his wife, Kelly, and their three kids. Yeah, so like I said, the book is in the adventure genre. Um, it's about a character named Thomas Sparkman, and he wasn't looking for trouble, but as you can imagine, he got into it. <laughs> um, he wouldn't have imagined being on a wanted poster, let alone becoming a notorious gold robber hunted in two states. Um, but when Thomas sneaks off to the Cuban front of the Spanish-American War with his sights set on returning to his pregnant wife in California, his path takes a series of unexpected turns. Um, so there's a lot of different stuff going on in this book. Uh, it's a mystery. There's a runaway circus sideshow performer and an Apache guide and her, her infant son. So it's safe to say, you know, there's a lot of different things happening at every twist and turn. And Thomas is wondering if he'll ever see home again. <laughs> yeah. And I, I really, I had a chance this summer, uh, to read it, uh, it, cause when Scott first reached out to us, uh, we talked about the fact that I liked Westerns and this is kind of a different kind of Western because someone's actually moving their way across the West in the late 1800s. So the West has really changed at that point in time. And it's interesting because you got the Spanish American war at the end of that century. And this is a, he becomes a, a, a deserter, um, you know, pretty much right before they win the war. So, but then he's trying to get his way back across. And it kind of reminded me, I don't know if anybody's ever seen the movie. It's uh, Dustin, Hoffman 1970 movie called Little Big Man and Little yes, Big Man. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. He kind of has all these different things happen in this series of people that he hooks up with. And that's kind of what happens to this character as he's trying to move across the West and get back to his to his wife that he left behind to join the war. And so um yeah, that's it. And I know Sarah uh Hannah, you asked him a couple of questions. Maybe we'll talk about those first. Yeah, I had a chance to catch up with him, and I asked him, um, what was your inspiration for this mystery, and why did you want to tell this story that involves a trek through the American West? The first time I thought to work within this era, I was still working on my first novel, Hard Road South, and living in Northern Virginia at the time. Uh, but we, my family visited the National Marine Corps Museum at Quantico up there, and there, it's really well done. There's a diorama there of the Spanish-American War, in Cuba, and it just had some, I think it was like a flag corps, some soldiers on top of a mountaintop overlooking the ocean. And it was just such a different scene. I'd never really considered that war and thought about the fighting in Cuba, but I thought that would be a pretty interesting time and place to write about. So, you know, I I like to find kind of these fringe periods of history where there's not much written about it otherwise. So another aspect of 1898 when that war was going on, that's interesting to me is the transition that was going on in the American West at the time. So that's kind of how that all came together. I was like, okay, well, so there's this guy and he wants to leave the front and go home. Where could home be? California. Why not? Because that way I got to get him across the whole American West. And, you know, this is a time when there aren't many, you know, the rowdy old Western cowboys are kind of fading away. Cities are growing. They have electricity, 
even in Denver, they see a steam car puttering around. So there's new technology. So it's just an interesting period. I did, this is about, I've said this is about as close to a Western as I'm going to get, but I did want to use the opportunity to explore it a little bit and introduce some characters that push back on some of the stereotypes perpetuated in, um, you know, like those classic pulp Western books and movies. So um, I do introduce some characters that you've seen before, but I put them in a different light and I try to show them you know, as more complicated individuals. A good example is Anawa, um, probably one of my favorite characters. She's an Apache uh, mother who is a guide to the group for a period, and she brings along her infant son. So um, uh, the Apache were kind of, um, you know, pigeonholed as this scary warlike tribe that was always, you know, harassing settlers. Anawa kind of shows a different side of that. And I did work with the, I reached out to the Apache tribe in New Mexico to help get that right. So I worked with their cultural center, which provide a lot of good input on the character and kind of on their culture. So that's really interesting. I I mean, I feel like that's a lot of research that's something like this too. And I I love the fact that you can kind of say, well, what's going to get this guy into the most (laughs) trouble? And it's the journey to California, the furthest possible place. So, uh, or just all the way across the West. That's really cool. I also asked Scott, if you could tell your younger writing self something of value that had you known when you first started writing your novels, it, it would have helped that younger writer. What would it be? When I was in high school and college, I did a lot of, uh, nonfiction kind of essay writing. I wrote a few short stories. That was about as far into fiction as I went, but I could never imagine sitting down and writing a novel. There was, that just didn't interest me. It was, it was kind of daunting. Um, and I, so I guess in my thirties, um, I sat down to start writing what I thought was a short story and it just kind of kept going. So, you know, what I learned from that is that when writing a novel, the chapters kind of hang together. Each one is essentially, you know, you can craft it as a short story in itself. You don't have to be daunted by the whole project looming out ahead of you, although it's kind of hard to ignore that. But, but uh, just take it one bit at a time. You don't even have to have, you know, when you sit down to write a chapter, you don't have to know what's going to happen. Take, you know, write out one thing that you want to happen in each chapter as you start mapping out your plot and just write to that get at it, make it happen somehow using the characters that you develop. And then also if you sit down to write and the words just aren't coming, um, it's okay. Use that time to move the story ahead in some other way. You can outline some chapters, write some backstory notes for characters, just do something so you can walk away from your desk, you know, feeling some sense of progress. I think um, if I'd known that when I was younger, it, it would have been, uh, wouldn't have been nearly as overwhelming to start a project like a novel. I, th- I think that's such good advice. It uh, is. <laughs> particularly for this book, you could tell that uh, maybe he didn't know what was going to happen <laughs> at the end of one chapter and the beginning of the next, because it just takes this kind of linear path across country, but it was so, um, it felt so real. It felt, you know, uh, engaging. It felt uh, like the characters were coming alive. And I know Sarah is a novelist too, that you, you, you've done this. You probably outlined a little bit, but you probably just let the, the, you know, your mind flow sometimes when you're writing. 
sometimes, but I'm very much an outliner. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and it's actually something that I'm trying to break myself of a little bit because yeah. I'm somebody who like really pl plots out. Um, so I'm trying to find that, give myself a little bit more leeway to find the story as I go. But yeah, I love what Scott was saying about, you know, just sit down and do something, even if you don't know where you're going with it, even if it's not what you're planning to do that day, like just get some work done and keep the story going. And I think that's, you know, that's how you write a novel. It's one little tiny bit at a time. Yeah. And yeah. Like, uh, and like our other novels, uh, novelists who are on the show, we've got a little reading here, but uh, Hannah, do you have something else you want to say there? No, I was just going to say it reminded me sort of of a writing class I'd taken previously that one of the best words of advice was just kind of have a purge day where you just sort of purge <laughs> it's like you write whatever comes to your mind about your characters or your plot anything like that and you just let it all out and it could be 20 pages or it could be two pages um mm -hmm. but it always kind of helps flesh out the actual story so i think that i don't know i feel like if you're writing something and i, I write more like essay style stuff so i can't really contribute too much on that part but um i think it's always an intimidating thing to kind of look at a blank page and be like, I'm about to write a novel right now. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's probably helps relieve some of that pressure. Yeah, don't, uh, don't you know, follow about, that advice. Don't think about the 300 pages when you start. Oh uh, yeah. No, no. <laughs> well, let's hear, let's hear a little bit from Scott's book. Here we go. This is from one of my favorite scenes in Gone the Redeemer. So to set it up briefly, it's 1898. Thomas, the narrator has deserted from the U S army and escaped from the Spanish American war front in Cuba, which is no small feat in itself. And he's making his way across um, America to his uh, to home to his wife in California. So at this point, he's crossing the Chihuahuan Desert in Texas with two traveling companions that he's met along the way. Atlantis, a somewhat mysterious mercenary from what Thomas can gather, and James, a British circus performer. So after two days in the desert, they're low on water, but they spotted a light from a cabin in the distance. So here they go. It was near dark when we reached the cabin, a low earthen roof structure at the tapered foot of the peak looming behind it. A weathered door hung on leather hinges and the light that first drew us to it shone through a hazy pane of glass in a small window. A lumpy adobe chimney rose above the roof line and emitted thin curls of wood smoke. The yard was sparse, but somehow still unkept. A splintered fence ran a few spans out from the side of the house before toppling over. A barrel lay in ruin several paces from the door, its staves splayed out from the rusted hoops like the skeletal ribs of a fallen desert beast. Standing fairly centered of the structure was a ring of brown rocks encircling a makeshift flagpole. From its top hung a ratty flag attached only at one corner, the Texas flag, from what I could see, though it had a ring of stars around the lone star in its blue field. I knew that flag from school books. It was an old banner of secession. Atlantis dismounted at the fence and tied off his horse. He checked and reholstered his pistols as we walked our horses up next to his. There was a wide dry pan lying in the yard, but no water to be seen for the horses. James and I dismounted. I left most of my gear draped over the horse's back, the rifle wrapped in my bedroll and tucked beneath a fender, but I slung my empty canteen over my shoulder and dug my sidearm out of my haversack. I ensured it was loaded and strapped it on. James watched us with a remarkably calm fascination. You expect trouble, he whispered. You can't not, I said. That's when it finds you. Atlantis started toward the door, but I moved ahead of him and put a hand up. I'll handle this one, friend. We don't want to scare our potential host in the hiding. I stepped up to the brittle slats of the door and cleared my throat. I knocked with three quick raps. Friendly light. 
There was no answer. I turned back to look at my comrades. James shrugged. I knocked again a bit louder this time. There was movement at the grimy window and I caught a glimpse of a man peering out at us, one wide eye and a tuft of wild gray hair atop his head before he disappeared down below the sill. Uh, hello, sir. We're travelers passing through and thought we might trouble you for some water. There was a rustling from within. Sir? The door opened to crack. The hinges creaked as if they might crumble at the effort. Eh? Who you say you are? His voice was hoarse, but with a distinctly thick Texan accent. Passers through. My name is Thomas, born and raised in San Antonio. With me here's Atlantis and James. Hey, what? Y'all is a funny-looking bunch. You say you want my water? Just a drink and a canteen full if you can spare it. And some for our horses. Horses? He laughed a little, quick and high-pitched, but to himself. Well, come on in. For all things Charlotte Meters Podcast, check out charlottemeterspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, we're in Act 3, Scene 1. Uh, we're, this is our marketing talk time, so uh, we're going to, yeah, we're going to talk marketing, book marketing, and uh, <laughs> Anna being the book whisperer here, she can certainly uh, weigh in and help us out. And Ask some good questions. Good, good <laughs> questions. I know Sarah does too, having been a published novelist. This uh, this topic is, uh, uh, what's a bookstagram tour and why should authors consider doing it? And uh, I've written a blog post on this. You can find that at uh, Wade Scripps uh, at my website, LandisWade.com. Very original name for a website. But, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and congrats to Sarah first on you got your website updated there too. That's awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. It looks I, great. It pays to have a dad who does web design. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> it helped me overhaul my <laughs> author website, which is it, awesome. Yeah, and just so everybody knows, um, we'll be putting this in show notes and our newsletters and everything. But we're going to be, each of us, uh, committed to writing you know, one blog post a month, putting it to our uh, individual websites. We'll link to it also uh, in our show notes and our uh, and in, and in the uh, newsletter. So there'll be that, and we'll be talking about those from time to time here on the podcast. And uh, each month on Patreon, we're also going to individually do some Patreon episodes for our patron supporters, where we talk about some of these topics. But we'll bring them to the free podcast every now and then too. And this is one of those. It's uh, what's a bookstagram tour, and why should authors consider doing it? So I guess I'll turn it over to y'all to. to to grill me on this time. Well, you, so for you, you kind of worked with an outside party to help coordinate a bookstagram tour, right? What was that like for you? Yeah. And so maybe, and I'll answer that question, but maybe we should just, I should tell readers, you know, what is bookstagram? <laughs> because people, you know, may go, well, I'm not really sure. Is that like TikTok or, you know, what exactly are we talking about here? And, and bookstagram is a way that, uh, creatives who are on Instagram um, actually, well, let's see, Google defines it as people known as bookstagrammers are Instagram users who focus on artfully staged book photos and or reviews. And they go on to say it's an integral part of the bookish community. So that's sort of a foundational definition of you know what bookstagram is and now i've lost the question yeah. i feel like well i feel like also to add to that bookstagram is kind of like i mean i would say it's like the social media 
fan club of reading. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of like I I look at it as kind of a hashtag too, where you, you know people who use or it's like the hashtag Bookstagram or Bookstagram or stuff like that, or people who have built these relationships with, um, you know, either publishing houses or publicists or people like um, you know companies that coordinate Bookstagram tours to get reviews out there for books. So it's kind of a very um, I don't know. It's it's becoming a huge thing right now, just because Instagram is a huge thing, and like you mentioned, TikTok, BookTok. I've I've read so many different articles lately that it's like a booming thing for books too. So it's kind of like the internet book fan club, book and author fan club. <laughs> and we are actually going to be in our episode three or three talking about BookTok. We've got an author who's going to come on and tell us a little bit more about that. It was something I haven't dipped my toe into yet, but. Uh, I have dipped it into Bookstagram, and to mm-hmm. back to your question as to why I decided to do that with the launch of my recent novel, I was looking for creative ways to kind of get the word out there. I mean, you know, look, all authors uh, struggle with, you know, how do you market and sell your right. book? I mean, and it's um, it, this is one way that uh, you can do it and have fun because I actually had fun engaging with uh, the Bookstagrammers who ended up pitching my book and putting it out there and they took different pictures of it. And I'll talk a little bit about that process, but I mean, just to start with, I would say if you're thinking about another way to uh, get some publicity for your book um, that also can result in reviews on the online providers like Amazon's and Goodreads, then connecting with the bookstagram tour that uh, is reputable and can do a good job well, get some early publicity for your book um, because what they do is uh, they pitch your book to their uh, to the people who in the past have been on you know part of their stable of people that, that do these tours and they'll they'll come in and they'll say yeah I'd like to do that book and then so what the author does once you connect with someone who's doing the tour is you then send them you know a paperback copy of the book and send them some information and they get the book and they take pictures of it. And it was really fun because I think I had about 25 uh, bookstagrammers on my tour and they all took pictures of the book in different ways. You know, some of them, because my theme has sort of a historical colonial period, some of them took it, uh, you know, next to the declaration of independence or next to the constitution with an American flag. And some took it outside and some took it with the colors or on a bookshelf. So you have all these different, nice looking photographs of your book too that you can use for promotion later and then they each put a review up on their page and then they'll go put it on uh as i said those online providers so you get some early reviews and by early let me just say this um, i made this mistake early on my first book i thought you write it they will come field of dreams no it doesn't work that way you gotta (laughs) plan ahead you really have to plan ahead and hannah you know this because you've you know you've helped me uh, as a publicist for this latest book, but we we were planning the release of that book what six months in advance, right? I mean, at least seven. Probably months. a little bit longer than that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and tell our listeners why we do it that way. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because you have to. <laughs> I mean, to put it simply, but no, I mean, honestly, I think the big thing is just like having a strategy, and that doesn't just happen overnight. So it's kind of just like what you're trying to do is get ahead of. Um, the curve, I guess is a good way to put it. But like, mm-hmm. so if your publication date, like for you, it was, um, 
earlier this spring. It was, Mm -hmm. it was something that we needed to start thinking about last summer, which we did that. So it's and like for, let's just say, cause you know, for you, I know you started doing your bookstagram. You reached out to start doing that last November for an April launch point, um, which is good because you're working with a lot of different folks schedules. So that's the big thing too. When you're looking at media coverage is you're not just kind of looking at your own needs where you're like, well, yeah, can you do this tomorrow? Like, no. And I, I think like it's, you have to work around the schedule, like editorial calendars and for bookstagrammers, like what books, they probably have a huge stack of books they have to read. So and it doesn't take, as you know, Landa, you know, it's just, it doesn't take no time to read like right. 10 books. So it's just, it's kind of important to just make sure you, you start doing this early so you can work on that schedule. So it's kind of timed out perfectly. Yeah, and that gets kind of into the nuts and bolts of it. I worked a uh, shout out here to Susie Approved Book Tours. Uh, I was uh, recommended to her by uh, Cindy Burnett with uh, Thoughts from Page Podcast in Houston. And, uh, you know, I connected with her. You know, and what I did was early on, uh, I sent her uh, a media sheet, uh, sent her access to Google Drive that had photos, uh, the book covers and reviews and that kind of thing. And, you know, that's just sort of a starting point to think about. That's another thing if you're talking about advanced, because when I'm sending that out in November or December uh, to the tour guide, um, I've got to already have that novel sheet put together. I've already got to have the Google Drive with some, you know, the book cover and everything in it. And uh, that's all very helpful to the tour guide because then they take that and they bundle it together. They send it out for people to sort. It's not really a bid, but they're kind of, yeah, I want to do this tour. And then when they hear back from you, I was then mailing out books to 25 bookstagrammers in December. So they had time to read it. And we planned a tour that ran from February 15th to April 15th because the book released on ebook on March 1st and released in print uh, on April 1st. And I know the dogs are happy about that, the way we, you know, save that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, back. <laughs> so, so we spread it out over, you know, like two months with 25 reviewers and it just kind of, released over time. But, but the point being, uh, you know, I had to plan in advance and, um, and people might be asking, well, you know, what does it cost to do something like that? And what I would say is that um, it's not a return on, you can get some that are much more inexpensive in the 250 to 300 range. You know, I went more in the $550 range because I wanted the full tour and I wanted someone that was professional and had done this many times and had a good, good rapport with the people. And and it showed what came through because they read the books, they provided their own unique perspectives. Um, I know for a fact that people who saw those reviews bought books. Um, I know that they left reviews. I know they referred them to people. You could see comments in their stream. Oh, I got to put this on my list to read, but can I do an actual ROI return on investment? No, you can't, you can't figure that out. It's not, and it's like a lot of things you do in book marketing. I know um, both of y'all know this from your experience. There are just a lot of things you can't quantify when you're talking about, you know, book marketing, right? And y'all may both have perspectives on that. Sarah, your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I think that's so true. And I mean, for me, since I was traditionally published, I didn't, I wasn't as hands-on with setting up a lot of that stuff for my book. Like with the UK release of my book from HarperCollins UK, they did do a bookstagram tour, but I really wasn't involved in it. The publisher set all of that up. So I don't know what they put into it. um, And I don't know exactly, like you were saying, you can't quantify exactly what comes out of it because a lot of the value is just getting your book out there. And you don't know exactly who is seeing those posts and seeing the cover, but the more 
the name and the cover image are out there and your name as a writer are out there, that's all contributing to, you know, a potential audience for the book and for your other books in the future. Um, so it might be a little bit frustrating from a business perspective that you can't know for sure if you're getting, you know, a real return on those dollars. But um, I think generally speaking, it's proven to be worth it. Yeah. And I think there's a difference. We talked about this before between book marketing and book selling. Uh, you know, book marketing is more about establishing uh, a little bit of your platform, your website, you know, maybe positioning your book so that people are starting to see it and talk about it. Book selling might be more in the terms of advertising, getting it into bookstores and those kind of things. Um, but for me, uh, I found that this particular part of uh, the book marketing process, other than just throwing dollars, you know, at some advertising algorithm was fun. It was engaging. I mean, I would, I would, they would tag, you know, I didn't have my cool little landish rights Instagram page set up. But <laughs> so they would tag Charlotte Rear's podcast uh, when they posted about it. And then people would engage about it. And they would also do these stories on Instagram, which I'm not any good at, but they would do that. And, and I would, you know, reshare those. Um, and then their communities would get engaged about it. And then Susie approved bookstores, book, book tour would actually put it up on her site. And so it got, it got a lot of traction early on. And when you're looking to try to get reviews early on, when you're getting, 15, 20, 25 reviews uh, early in the process from people that aren't your mother, your brother, your sister, that kind of thing. It helps kind of start to get, you know, the excitement, you know, going about the book. So I found it uh, to be valuable process. And if anybody's listening uh, who's curious about what it looked like in this particular blog post uh, on my website, uh, atlantisway.com, I almost said Landis Rights because that's my, my little uh, <laughs> Instagram thing. <laughs> But atlantisway.com, you can go there, and, you, and I've got at the end of the blog post, I've got all of the images of those uh, from the Bookstagram tour. What I did was every time they posted one, I would go in and I would copy the uh, image they created and drop it in a folder because I knew I might be able to use it later uh, for some kind of promotion. So it, it was, you know, I, I think is it's really one of the things that's, if you're talking about, you know, you can spend a lot of money in a lot of different ways on marketing, but I do think it's one thing it does have some value uh, for pretty good, decent price um, when you're talking about getting earlier views and getting uh, some traction out there with people that have got, you know, big followings. Now I have a question too. Obviously you went through this woman, Susie, to do your bookstagram tour. Is this something that writers can coordinate on their own? Like, is it kind of kosher to reach out directly to bookstagrammers and ask them to read your book? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, uh, wrong with that there's no real difference than that than actually reaching out to people and advancing them to be and asking them to be advanced readers um i do think though that it's harder uh for an author uh, who's publishing a book if they're not a bookstagrammer themselves and they're not already in that community following other bookstagrammers to actually get on their radar and get into you know their queue in terms of being but if you if you're friends with bookstagrammers and you know they willing to read your book sure you can reach out to them and try to be a part of it but i do think um that if you go through a tour guide um not only are you going to get the the promotion from a wider variety of people that you might be able to touch base with yourself but you're going to be on their instagram site you're going to be on your tour guide site you're going to be on the tour guide's website and you just might have a chance to touch more people that being said there's no reason not to do a bookstagram tour and also reach out to those people that you know who are really active influencers on Instagram and say, Hey, if I send you a copy of my book, 
will you do an honest review, you know, for your, for your followers? I would say also that it's important to um, build the relationship before asking them to right. do that. Like, cause that's something that I've heard just from folks that I know who do it. Um, and it's kind of just like, I think if you're an author that wants to do it yourself, that's great, but you just would want to make sure you're already like following the person, liking their posts, like doing things like that to make it like very obvious that you value the work that they're doing and you kind of see, you know, you just sort of feed their brand too. Um, and I would say to just, it's probably like going through someone who already has those connections. I mean, especially with the rise of bookstagram, since there's, I mean, there's so many different levels of, um, influencers too. There's like the micro influencer influencers who have less followers. And then there's the big ones that have like 50,000, you know, whatever it might be. Um, it's, if you work with someone who's been doing it for a long time, you're more likely, I would say to kind of be seen by some of these folks. Um, and a good way to tell just if you are a writer who's looking to do something like that on your own is just to go to their bios. Um, and some people will have emails on there and those are probably the people who are going to be more receptive to what you're going to say because you don't have to go through a million hoops or you don't <laughs> like have to, um, kind of go through the DM or just, just like, it's going to be a lot more direct. So that might be an indication that those are people who are more open to receiving pitches from authors and stuff like that. Um, just because I think over the last several years, it's gotten to a point where it's, it's very similar to like a big media outlet. I mean, there's, while there's different levels and different accounts and stuff like that, the, the ones who are really going to make an impact, it, it might be better to go through someone who already has that in. Or like I said, if it has, you know, if you go to their bios and you're kind of looking into their brand and stuff like that, if they have direct contact information, because those are the people that are going to want to talk to you versus like having the contact for, you know, stuff like that. So, um, and just to add to that, I would say that they will know too whether these Instagrammers, Bookstagrammers, or they like to read the genre that you're actually writing. So, for example, here with your rom com, you know, you probably want Instagrammers. You've got big followings in the rom com arena who are gonna, you know, want to read your book and get excited mm -hmm. about it. Same thing with me. I was looking for the mystery thrillers, and they she, she reached out to some cozy mystery Bookstagrammers. So if, if uh, don't just go to any. Instagram or uh, listener and, and you know, they may be doing historical fiction and your book is a fantasy set in outer space. Well, it's probably not going to be a good fit. And, and if they did decide to do it, they might not give you a very good review. But uh, so try to look for, you know, those people that do it, which kind of brings to, to heart the, the, the point that, you know, not every book is for everybody. You know, I mean, there are readers love to read, you know, different, kinds of work some are literary fiction some are like i said mystery some are humor some uh narrative nonfiction. so uh it's all about kind of finding and i agree with hannah that uh while, while you can reach out actually if you if you can as an author build your own influencer following you know i mean that's almost better than anything right if you if you've got ten thousand or twenty thousand thirty thousand followers on instagram uh you might not even need a bookstagram tool or maybe you make connections with other people uh, who are your followers and you follow them. Uh, and that's a good way to, to connect. So uh, it's really, it, it gets back to, it's all kind of about community. And if you've got the community, uh, use it uh, at the same time, give back uh, when you do uh, be careful about cold call. And if you do cold call, cold call a, uh, a bookstagram tour and, and pitch them with what you have and maybe they'll put you in the right, in the right space. I like how, uh, just one quick thing is I like how they call themselves tour guides. <laughs> I think that's cute. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs>
Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. That was like a nice time, and we'll drop in there, right? So, we'll, social media, we're talking about social media, Instagram and Bookstagram and that kind of thing. Okay, so <laughs> we're going to, we're going to, uh, drop into another uh, our final um, author feature for today and Sarah has the the lead on this uh, Sarah take it away yeah so we're so excited to have another great thriller for you here on the show today it's called Hannah and Ariella and it's by Johnny Bernhard um, Johnny aside from writing as a former teacher and journalist um, she's the author of the award-winning novels A Good Girl how he came to be in Sisters of the Undertow. And she also served as a speaker for the 2020 TED Talk Fearless Women series. And when she's not doing her own writing, she's a teaching artist and a supporter of young writers in public schools. Um, she also lives 100 miles from the Texas-Mexico border, which I'm sure provided her some great inspiration for this book, Hannah and Ariella, um, because it takes place right in that part of the country. Um, in this story, you have two worlds that collide when there's a 73-year-old widow who finds the semi-conscious body of a 14-year-old Mexican national in a ditch along a central Texas remote byway. The question of justice for a victim of human trafficking and the elderly woman who kills the perpetrator lies in the hands of a biracial border patrol officer and an unconventional small-town sheriff. In this novel, you see the I-10 quarter of Texas, which connects saints, demons, and victims in this thriller. Um, readers follow the underbelly of the cartels, human trafficking, and the voices of people trapped in a justice system on the verge of collapse. So definitely a timely story, it sounds like. Um, and we were so excited to catch up with Johnny and ask her a couple questions. And first I asked her, what was her inspiration for this mystery and why did she want to tell this story that involves human trafficking? The reason why my fourth novel, Hannah and Gabriella, is a mystery with the central theme of the horrors of human trafficking is because for the last several years, I have followed a small town paper in central Texas where my husband and I have a home. And for two years, they have reported the horrors of human trafficking within that very small ranching community. This is located near the I-10 corridor with through my research. I learned that is the human trafficking corridor from San Diego, California to Jacksonville, Florida. This novel is my humble attempt to bring awareness to human trafficking and its horrors. It's not just a problem on the border between Texas and Mexico and the other border states. It is everywhere, it is prolific. Our children are literally being kidnapped from malls outside of schools to never be seen again. Again, this is my humble attempt to bring awareness to human trafficking through the voices of Hannah, a 73 year old widow, owner of a ranch, in a desolate area of Central Texas, approximately 100 miles from the Mexico border. Our other protagonist is Ariela, a very innocent young girl growing up in Zaragoza, Northern Mexico, who was kidnapped with a friend and brought across the border. Sarah, one of the things uh, I find interesting about that is she is experienced with this part of the country and telling the story, but but she's working into this novel, these you know real life circumstances, and mm -hmm. using 
using the the form of a novel to actually speak to an important issue uh, that we're dealing with, you know, in society today. Yeah. And I think that's such a powerful thing because, you know, we we're all so sort of inundated by news stories, I think, whether it's watching actual news or social media or whatever, that sometimes the things that are happening in the world kind of just become background noise. But sometimes you can actually capture people's attention more and make it hit home even harder by putting it into a fictional format. So I think that writing a novel about these very important and real topics is a powerful thing that you can do. Um, and we also had Johnny read her um, a portion of her book. So we're interested to hear um, her scene from Hannah and Ariella. I'd like to read from a chapter entitled Hannah at the Duran Ranch. She is the principal ranch owner now that her husband has passed away, a very loving, nurturing marriage of many years. Hannah's ranch is located about a hundred miles in central Texas from the Mexico border. Chapter 12. I woke to the sound of a barn owl outside my window the morning of the tornado anniversary. The church's anniversary mass was this evening. I should go, but I could think of a million reasons why I didn't want to. Watching the bird take flight, his eerie shriek trailing behind him, I wondered if he was the same owl my husband said nested in the oak near the deer blind on the north side of the ranch. The morning call to my brother Buddy was a reminder of today's date and the three months I'd been made a widow. The ache of it, all of it encompassed within me was the exact same way I felt on the day that August died. But I kept pushing myself, thinking I had to see people, go to town, improve the ranch. I'd come to the realization there was no real reason I should still be alive. The love of my life was gone. My son was a grown man. He and his family had their own lives. The grief wouldn't subside, and I refused to burden other people with it. My brother had his own problems with their families. Even my oldest buddy had slowed down since losing Alice. Plus, it wasn't an easy thing for a man that age to drive all the way out to the ranch just to keep me company. Family wasn't what it was when I was growing up. People today didn't want more stress in their lives, and that's what I was. A responsibility to my son and an obligation to my daughter-in-law. My grandsons no longer enjoyed coming to the ranch as much as they did when their grandfather was alive. Their weekend visit at Easter was cut short by the blunt reminder life was fragile out here. You had to pay attention to everything you did when walking out on the land. It was an important lesson we gave to our son, but our son didn't teach his children nearly as well. Aaron and Will had set out for a walk after breakfast with their dog, Bandit, an undisciplined, nervous beagle. Early spring was a tender time on the ranch. Fawns were learning to walk. Quail and turkey were born. The natural world was awakening from winter. It was a rite of passage I held sacred, protecting the newly born and their vulnerability. I almost walked with the boys that day, but I held back, thinking 
I shouldn't interfere with their freedom to roam the land by themselves. I also wanted them to know I trusted them to make the right decision. The one I didn't trust was Bandit. He was a reckless animal, and my grandsons, as hard as it was to admit, weren't taught to respect wildlife like they should have been. The boys weren't gone but about an hour when Will burst into the kitchen with tears running down his red, sweaty face. Grandma, Bandit chased the fawn and its mother. The doe got away, but Bandit caught up to the fawn, biting it on the neck and legs. I screamed at Aaron to help me. Help me stop Bandit. He just stood there. Well, thank you, Johnny, for that uh, very beautifully written passage. And I also got a chance to catch up with her and talk a little bit about writing process and ask if there was a piece of advice that she could give to her younger writing self that um, might have made a difference when she started writing novels. What would that be? When I reflect upon my younger writing self and things I wish I would have told me, told myself is make the time, tell that story, don't be afraid to write a novel. But then again, I think perhaps it's taken me all these years to truly know these stories. If I could share anything with the younger writing community is to invest in your craft learn, listen, attend conferences, read great literature, because all these things help us to grow as writers. Yeah, that's pretty good advice. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of, I think she just put an exclamation mark on some things that we'd we'd heard earlier, this idea of, uh, you know, uh, investing in your craft and reading, which we talked about Mm -hmm. as part of the episode here, but uh, also liked her comment, don't be afraid. I mean, uh, it kind of gets into my philosophy um, in your act threes of life, but you could apply them to your act ones and act two is that, you know, what's the worst that can happen, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it ain't, it ain't going to work out. Yeah. I, I talk in one of my blog posts that uh, we'll have about the fact that, uh, so you want to teach yourself a, a new craft. You want to learn how to, I don't know, speak a language or play a piano or an instrument or something and uh, or write a book. And it takes you three to six years to do it. And you're so frustrated by the time it took you three to six years to do it. And I say, well, just think how long would it have taken you if you never got started. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. A lot longer. <laughs> good point. A lot longer. So, yeah, so that's uh, that's good. We're going to have uh, just a short final uh, message here. We're going to jump into Act 4, and we're going to talk about what we'll put in that act when uh, people engage with us. And then uh, we've got, uh, you know, a few uh, wrap-ups, and uh, then we'll be talking about what's up in the next episode. So, uh, So just stay with us for just a moment. You can subscribe to Charlotte Reader's Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. Oh, and if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, because when you do, we travel much farther and wider in podcast land. All right, well, this is Act 4, and Scene 1 normally for Act 4 would be things like, uh, listeners, when you send us an email at our contact page, uh, or you go to our contact page under listener feedback, and, and instead of sending an email, you click on the link to SpeakPipe and leave us an audio voicemail. Uh, We can use that on the podcast. We can drop it in. We'll do it here. And it it might stimulate uh, a conversation about something. And then we're also going to be dropping in a blog post. Hannah, you want to mention the community blog and what we're doing there? 
Yeah, so we have a community blog on our on the Charlotte Readers Podcast website, which offers the opportunity for writers really from anywhere to kind of post their thoughts on writing or their craft or um, marketing thoughts on writing, all of that good stuff, and they can submit through our website. Um, and yeah, so we'll be sharing those here on the podcast as well as in our newsletter. That's great. So, all right, on the on the takeaways today, we'll start off with Sarah. Sarah, what are some of your thoughts about uh, today's episode? Gosh, I feel like I learned some really good, useful, concrete writing tips today. Like I loved Kathy Collins tip about, um, you know, how to to use other people's writing to get you kind of started when you're in a writing session. I love what Hannah said about having a purge day when you're writing. I'm going to try doing that. <laughs> um, and I picked up some great tips about how to use Bookstagram too and um, how to not just actually when you're starting a Bookstagram tour, but kind of longer range, just getting involved in Bookstagram and following those accounts and getting to know the ones that you like and that are giving book recommendations that maybe apply to you. And that's a good way to kind of engage on a longer basis. And then when you have something ready to promote, you've already got that network built. That's great. Uh, Hannah, your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I love hearing from writers on this show, like fiction writers. It's always super interesting to me. And I always feel like I come away with um, a, min a million different book recommendations. But I think the big takeaway for me today was, um, again, just kind of like thinking about how reading or studying the craft that you want to do really helps you to do it, whether that be screenwriting or, um, you know, if you're if you want to write a fiction novel or a Western novel or something like that, you should be reading all of those things and um, kind of studying that craft. And I think it's super interesting. So I, I actually went to college originally for film studies. So I really enjoyed talking with you, Sarah, about that today, um, just kind of learning more about what's it actually take to turn your book into a film or a TV show. And I think that's something I hear all across the board, just working with authors every day. It's just like, I really feel like this would be a great movie and that's great, but it's, it's nice to know the actionable steps that you can take to get that done. Um, so I think that, you know, just learning what that process looks like, the length of time it takes, the dedication, like how you actually study the craft of screenwriting. That's really interesting. And I think, um, yeah, I, I really loved that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll piggyback on that. I enjoyed that conversation too with you, Sarah, because, uh, you know, um, everybody thinks their book's going to be a movie someday. So, <laughs> <You know>. <laughs> <laughs> which yeah. is Never good, know. you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just saw these characters in a movie, you know, so the, yeah. <laughs> the idea of trying to take that and turn it into something is not as easy as you might think. And I, I do think it might be interesting to study that craft at some point and maybe give it, give it a shot, you know, take one of the books I've written and just see, you know, what I might be able to do with it and play with it because, you know, I mean, it's, it's all, it's part of the learning process. And I, I like that about this episode too, different authors talking about how, you know, this is, this is an overtime kind of thing. You, you know, you just don't write a book and then suddenly, you know, everything about it. So you're, you're continuing to learn. You can, you know, Johnny mentioned that at the end and, you know, take your time, invest in your craft, do those kinds of things. And 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 the other authors we heard from too talked about uh, well, maybe they you know, they never thought they would write a novel, you know, but but they did, and they did it by not thinking about maybe they're tricking their brain. I'm not really writing a novel. I'm just writing a I'm just writing a paragraph. I'm just writing a chapter. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, if you get enough of them together, you think I'm getting closer to a novel, which is a good thing <laughs> to think about because uh, you know as I think about the next novel, having gone through all the work to put this full length novel out and all the promotion. I'm thinking, okay, I got to get started. I got to get started. I got some ideas, you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, um, I had fun and also learned that uh, trying to punch buttons on a, on a mixer. And uh, it's kind of like trying to 
and talk at the same time. I think that's what I'm doing. Kind of like trying to you know, pat your belly and do your head thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so Multitasking for <laughs> DJ now. So, so, so bear with us, listeners, as we try to work through that. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, we've even got you know some some music stuff on here that we can play, like uh, you know. You know, so like we can get you know, that. <laughs> heading think? to the beach. <laughs> yeah. so that, there you go. So I'll, I'll just bring that uh, down a little bit here, and we'll let's uh, lead us. We're gonna in. have to put a picture of the um, the sound mixing board on our Instagram for the podcast. Exactly. Yeah, no, no, we will. Yeah. Yeah. I actually just I just posted one this morning on Instagram. So there you go. Okay. So, uh, right, perfect. All right, so uh, I, I will not play with the music for the moment, but sir, I'm gonna let you. Tell us what's coming uh, next, both in terms of the authors. Uh, this will be episode three or three and the topics we're going to be talking about. Yeah, we've got some really exciting stuff coming up on episode 303. We're going to feature author Kathy Daniels in her novel Live Caught, a dark southern gothic adventure sourced in the rural mountains of western North Carolina. It's a story of an abused one-armed boy who steals the family's gift to follow his father's wistful dream of riding the Carolina rivers all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. One reviewer said that it has a unique alchemy of ingredients from a clockwork orange and huckleberry fin. That sounds sounds cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a really cool, unusual book, and I had a great conversation with Kathy. So I'm excited about that. Um, we're also going to bring you author John Basoff and his novel Beneath Cruel Waters, a psychological thriller where a man learns that his estranged mother has taken her own life and returns for the funeral, hoping to make peace with her memory. But then things spin out of control. One bestselling author calls it an intense, gripping, exceptionally written mystery thriller that everyone must read. And Hannah, you read that book, right? Yeah, it was really good. It was like a badass book, honestly. I was like, this guy is going off right now. Right. Very good. I love that. Sounds high octane. As I say. Yeah. Um, and then our third author that we're going to feature next time is Suzanne Goodwin, her novel Wrightsville Beach, which is set in an iconic North Carolina beach. Um, the novel explores self-discovery, surfing, and finding true love. Perfect for a summer read, it sounds like. Um, and one reviewer says that it's a beautiful coming-of-age story of young love that falls victim to the trials of life. Yeah, and I've spent a lot of time down at Riceville Beach and know that territory. It'd be a lot of fun to talk about that. And she's going to talk about book talk. Uh, book talk, I guess it is, yeah. Yeah, that's our book marketing topic for next time. What is book talk and is it worth a try for authors? I have a lot of questions, so <laughs> I'm excited for that one too. I need I need help. I need to learn what book talk is <laughs> and how to use it. It's like a new, different world. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and for our writing topic next time, we're going to explore the question, how to draw inspiration from setting and how to imbue your writing with a strong sense of place, which I think is something that the authors we're talking to next time are going to have some great tie-ins with. Um, so that'll be a great conversation too.